Hello, and welcome to the Missing Link for the SLPs podcast. I am so glad you are here. Today's episode is part of the Medical SLP series where we talk to some amazing speech paths who work in a variety of medical settings, all the way from intensive care through to home care and everything else in between and beyond. You're going to hear some incredible medical SLP stories and lots of advice from these passionate medical SLPs. I'm welcoming Jenny Pravda to the Missing Link for SLPs podcast today. And she and I, before we started um, recording this, we were talking about how busy we can be as speech pathologists. And one of the things I'm going to be asking Jenny about is how she, how we balance everything with all that you have going on. Now you're coming on the series as a day in the life of a medical SLP, right? Yep. So tell us what settings you work in. So um, I work in acute, re- in acute care. Um, in my hospital, there's also an acute rehab. So we're very fortunate because sometimes we get to follow our patients from acute care through yeah. the rehab, which is really cool and a little bit different. Um, I spend 90% of my time these days in acute care. Um, it's what I love. It's my passion. So, you know, it keeps me very busy. It's certainly been a busy year for us in acute care. Um, with COVID and, you know, the regular everyday cases that we saw didn't stop because COVID was going on. So um, it was a whole new mix of learning something new and being able to balance what we were already doing. So tell us why, have you always been wanting to be a medical speech pathologist and how did you get started in our, in our, in our field? So interestingly enough, I do have a master's in organizational psychology. Oh, Um, yes. So I was living in New York um, on 9-11. And after that happened for weeks, I was volunteering um, for the cleanup after 9-11 in Manhattan. And I just sort of had the feeling of that I wasn't fulfilled and that I wanted to be doing something else. Later that year, my father had gotten very sick and he was in a coma for about six weeks. And when he came out of the coma, he had suffered a hypoxic brain injury. And while I was in the room with him, his speech therapist came in one day to work with him. And, you know, like many other people, I just assumed that speech therapists worked with kids. And I became very interested in what she was doing with him. And I said, what's this? This is what I want to do. And we met for coffee that weekend and I was hooked. And I started taking my prereqs. I mean, this was already after I had been gotten my master's degree in psychology, had been working in the field and decided that I wanted to go back to school. Um, And that's how it got started. And I knew going into school, into my graduate degree and into my prereqs that I just wanted to work in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I was a woman with a mission. That's all I wanted to do. Nobody was going to stop me. Um, and everything I did was towards that goal. 
So can I ask how old about you were when you went back for your second degree? Because um, I, was, I was 30. You were 30. Excellent. I was 30 when I went back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the old lady in the class. <laughs> I had a, a one-year-old at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I was taking my prereqs, I remember I'd be nursing my son and writing a paper at the same time. And my teachers would, you know, my professors would make comments like, you sent me that paper at two o'clock in the morning. And I'd say, I had a baby at home. I had him in one arm. I was typing in the other. That's the time I had to send in that paper. So it was a very crazy couple of years for me. Mm -hmm. But what an inspiration you are for people who are non-traditional. I was like you. I went back after a, a, not a first master's degree, but I went back from a different career as a writer and decided to go back. Well, I think, you know, what I find it very hard to believe that people know what they want to do when they start college at 18. Mm -hmm. And not everybody does. And, you know, you haven't seen the world yet. You haven't had all this experience yet. Right. So sometimes when you experience different things, it leads you down a different path. I have to apologize for my voice. I so I'm coming off bronchitis and I so did not want to cancel this interview with you because I'm excited about what you had to share with us with all of your backgrounds. And I think you have a lot of wisdom. We don't all know where we want to go. And even when we graduate from graduate school, we're like, you know, where do I want to go? Where do I want to work? Well, and I think that's what's so great about our degree is we can do so many different things. You know, you're not, you're not just set on doing one thing. When I did my CFY, I actually worked in acute care and outpatient doing um, with adults and with pediatrics. So I was doing all these different things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're not set just doing one thing and you can always change that thing, right? Mm -hmm. You can always do something else. Right. I've in the medical SLP setting, I think I've worked along the whole entire continuum. ICU, acute, subacute, rehab, home health, outpatient, um, palliative care. It's been a great journey. But not always easy. Right, not always easy. What has been what does your day look like in an acute care that we have? So in- Part of what I love about my day is that it's never the same. Mm -hmm. So our day is always different. Um, You know, we come in in the morning. um, I take a look at our census in the hospital. um, I kind of have a plan for the day. We usually see our patients all morning and in the afternoon we do video swallows. So I get in fairly early. I'm usually at work before 7 a.m. Um, I like being there for two meals um, because I think that, you know, doing our, our swallowing evaluations during meals is so much more functional right. and treating patients during their meals is so much more functional. So I, I've just gotten used to this schedule over the years. And um, so we basically, you know, we, we do our, all our evaluations and whatever therapy we can get done in the morning and the afternoon, we do our video swallows. And if there's time left over, we'll see more patients after that. 
my day's opposite. I do my videos when I'm in clinic on Fridays. I do my videos and that work in the morning and inpatients in the morning. And then my evals and treatments are in the afternoon. So I started off doing it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, The hospital that I'm working, I spend most of my time in now prefers to have video swallows in the afternoon. Okay. So your day begins at seven. Yep. And when does it end? Um, does it ever end? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we leave work at work sometimes. Um, typically the, the work day ends at three 30. Okay. How flexible is your schedule? In terms of. If you need a day off or time off for a doctor's appointment or something. Yeah, we're, they're really good about that. Um, there is a lot of flexibility. I also, um, I work every other Sunday, so I have off every other Friday. Um, so having that Friday off during the week is excellent for me because I can get so much done. I typically don't mind working on Sundays because the hospital is a lot quieter on a Sunday. Um, so I tend to get much more done because there's less going on. You know, there's patients at fewer tests on a Sunday. Typically, I find everybody in their room on Sundays. So it's a more productive workday for me. What are the top etiologies that you see or disorders that you treat? So I work in a neurosurgery hospital. Um, So we are seeing a lot of neurosurgeries now. Um, Not a lot of neurosurgical patients. Um, We do a lot of, um, we have a lot of stroke patients. Um, now we're starting to dwindle down on COVID patients, but I mean, for months, all I was seeing was COVID patients. Um, that would be a majority of our patients. So I don't think a COVID patient is something that the students are learning in graduate school right now. Can you describe to us what a COVID patient is like? What do you look for? Um, so... It depends. There's different kinds of patients with COVID. You know, there's those that have been intubated and those that have not been intubated. The intubated patient is going to look different than the non-intubated patient. Um, typically, they have a different presentation. The presentation of our COVID patients have also changed over the last year. I find now this is just my observation: is our patients are not as sick as they were at the beginning because I think that we're treating them better because we've now gotten more of a handle on how to treat Mm -hmm. the disease. So they're not as sick. Um, At the beginning, you know, our patients were dying all the time. Um, Now it's a lot less frequent. Um, Whereas, you know, maybe a year ago, 90% of my patients were COVID. Now, I have maybe one or two on my schedule at any one time. Um, So, you know, we're seeing a lot of patients with, um, you know, laryngeal laryngeal damage from being intubated, Mm -hmm. swallowing issues, voice issues, cognitive issues, um, everything along that. I mean, I've seen patients on ventilators. Um, We didn't usually... Our ventilator population historically has been very low, um, but over the past year we've had, because of the COVID patient population was getting um, traits more often, we were seeing more um, 
patients on ventilators. What would you say your age range is for these patients? For our general population or the COVID population? The COVID population and the general. So our COVID patients are all over the place, Mm -hmm. to be honest. I don't say that there's a generalization at all. Um, I've seen COVID patients in their 30s. I've seen COVID patients in their 90s. Um, There really is not a general age. Um, Our patients overall can range from I mean, I've seen patients in their 20s. I had a patient who was 19 last week. Um, so patients in their hundreds. You know, it's amazing to me. I had a patient a couple of weeks ago, 96, goes to the gym every day. Wow. Every day. He says he drives to the gym, he goes to the gym every day at one o'clock. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good for him. Drives himself. Now that worries me a little bit. <laughs> But, you know, I'm not a greatest driver, so I can't complain. But, um, yeah. What have been some of your challenges in your setting? Um, So challenges come in different forms. Um, Sometimes it's challenges because I see something I've never seen before. And I've been lucky enough to have a lot of colleagues throughout my career, mentors throughout my career that I can go to with questions. Um, If I have any questions about something I haven't seen or something that baffles me or a clinical presentation where I'm looking at a patient and saying, this just doesn't make sense. Um, So I think that one of the best things for anybody who's new to the field to do is build up that clinical network and have those contacts. And things that people that you can just throw questions at. Um, So, you know, really those presentations of things that you have never seen before. That's a challenge. It's also a challenge trying sometimes um, knowing that things should could be done a certain way, but not having either the resources or the availability to do what you want to do. What have been some rewards working in that setting? So seeing somebody progress from, you know, their worst. I I think about one of my patients who came in, in her 30s, we were about the same age at the time we first met. And we've I've known her for about probably about 10 years now because um, we've kept, kept in touch over the years. So she came in with a brain tumor. Um, and when, she, when I first met her, she couldn't speak. She couldn't eat. She couldn't walk. And I saw her progress all the way from acute care through rehab post rehab and outpatient and we kept in touch and seeing her get her life back mm-hmm. and seeing her overcome all these challenges. So inspirational to me. One of my favorite things about being a therapist is we really have the time to sit alongside someone and educate and collaborate with them on where their challenges are and where they want their treatment plan to go. And that just makes it so much more functional for them. 
And that inner drive comes from them then. And it is fun to watch them progress and gain back some of what they've lost. And not everybody does, but Mm -hmm. even gaining back some of what they lost. And it's those little baby steps. I mean, one of the challenges in acute care is that you don't always get to see all of the progression, right? So you see them right after an acute event. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they're gone in three or four days. Sometimes they're gone in two weeks. Um, And not being able to see them get better is sometimes a challenge because you want to know what happened to them, right? Right. Right. It's been interesting working and I think you may have this perspective as well, working with someone who is acute and then seeing them on the other side. So you know that when you're sitting beside their bed and you're talking to their caregiver and they're, they're just, they're a fresh stroke, you can give them the perspective of this is not how they're always going to be. Right. And they're up there, they, they may get better. I mean, we can't promise anything. There is no magic ball, right? No. No, there's not. But I believe in us. I believe in our profession. I believe in our skill. Correct. You mentioned resources earlier and networking. Do you have any networking words of advice for listeners? How do you how do you reach out to somebody and say, I don't know this. Can you tell me? How do you do so, that and not, not sound like you don't know something yet still be confident? Okay, so the first thing that you have to get rid of is that idea of being embarrassed that you don't know something, mm-hmm. right? Because we've all been in that place. I've been working in the field. I graduated from grad school 13 years ago this week. And I'm out in the field for 13 years. And I will tell you, there's things I do not know, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't be an expert in everything. So getting rid of that idea, okay, I'm going to be embarrassed. I don't know this. I have made cold calls to other therapists. I have thrown questions out on forums and then sent private messages to people and said, listen, can we talk about this? Um, I had reached out to, I, I think I had posted a question out on a forum and I had gotten a bunch of responses from this one woman. I private messaged her and I said, it seems like you're in my area. Can I call you? Can we talk about this? And it turned out she had worked in it. She was working in a hospital that was 20 minutes from mine. We exchanged email addresses. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, and sometimes it's just putting yourself out there, right? And making that connection with people. We're in a helping profession, right? Mm-hmm. So we all want to help. We should want to help each other. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 t- so I take students every year because mm-hmm. I believe in giving back to our profession. And, and I keep in touch with my students. We've hired many of my students. Um, and I think that that's important, right? And maintaining that, those relationships with people. I agree. I agree. How about some of your top resources? Um, who they are, some of my top resources. I can tell you, so one of my top resources is a speech therapist who actually covered for one of my maternity leaves, <laughs> who is now a program director at a school in New Jersey. Um, another one of my top resources is a colleague that I work with. She's phenomenal. And she left um, our hospital system. She's in private practice. 
you know, I have also developed my for myself people who I know are experts in different things. Mm -hmm. So when I have questions on voice, I call my voice friend. And mm -hmm. if I have questions on um, a neuro issue, I have a neurologist I call. And mm -hmm. really getting the, those people together um, that are your experts that you know that you can call, okay, I have this question, I can call this person. And it takes a couple of years to form a network, right? Um, it's not going to happen overnight, but if you are a student and you have a phenomenal supervisor, keep in touch, mm -hmm. right? It's important. And just putting yourself out there. And that also... It is a mature speech pathologist, a wise speech pathologist who says, like you said, I don't know everything and let's collaborate on this. And by not pretending you know everything and by not faking it, then those in your network know that they can trust the recommendations they send to you as well. Because when you don't know something, you're going to ask and you're going to figure it out. Exactly. And I don't, I don't pretend to know everything. Listen, there are a lot of diagnoses that I've never heard of. I had a man come in for an outpatient video swallow. Mm -hmm. And I had never, ever heard of his syndrome before. And I don't get, I don't, I don't know anything about my outpatients until they're sitting in the waiting room. And here this man was. And I'm looking at him and I have the faintest idea of how to go about this video swallow that I'm about to do based upon his diagnosis. Um, and you know what? I educated myself. I educated myself before I asked questions to his family. And I said, tell me a little bit more about this. And they said, I'm so glad you asked. And then afterwards, we he had a trait that was specially created for him from a medical company. They sent me all the information about his specific trait afterwards so that I could educate myself, right? Because this is not anything I had seen before. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you, you, you got me thinking because I have been in the same situation where I've, I've down a video swallow and we've gone through our first or second swallow and I something happens I'm just not expecting um like the reflux is so bad that it just everything that goes down comes right back up and you know I've I've had to really work closely with my radiologist and you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that when you have questions about neurology you call your neuro your neurologist friend how do you develop those relationships with physicians? Uh, so I am very lucky to have been working with the physicians in my hospital for a very long time, many of them for a very long time. There are some physicians that I've known since they were residents in the mm -hmm. hospital. So I've known them for a very long time. And, you know, you develop relationships over time just based upon, you know, respect of knowledge and of intelligence, I feel, and education. 
you know, a lot of our, a lot of my physician, the, a lot of the physicians that work in my building will come to me about things that they've seen and ask me questions mm-hmm. and I can answer them in an educated way. We build up a respect and a rapport. How would students start doing that if they're newer in their clinical fellowship? I would say, and, you know, I said this to my student just last week. She apologized to me. She said, I'm sorry I'm asking so many questions. And I said, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. Um, Asking questions builds education. And then I hope that you're going home at night and researching the things that you asked me about. Um, and I will lead her to resources to, to research the questions she's asking me and just building up that knowledge base. Can you share with us a story of a patient that you've shared one already of a woman that you followed along with her recovery? Can you share another story that you'll remember that just touched your heart on this is why we do what we do? Um, yes, I can. <laughs> um, I had this gentleman who had gone in for um, knee surgery and had a stroke while he had the knee surgery. He came to our hospital. He came to rehab. He could not swallow anything. He could not swallow his saliva. He would walk around with a coffee can and you know, spit into the coffee can all day because not he could not even swallow his saliva. So it was a frustrating couple of months for him. Um, and he had actually gotten, he had gotten a little bit better while he was there in our hospital. He had progressed a little bit. And as an outpatient, he came in for a video swallow after his discharge. And I looked back at the video swallow and I said, you know what? I bet you would benefit from Botox. I said, Botox to um, the UES is not something we do in our hospital, but I referred him to somebody who did do it. And he went and he got the Botox done. The day before Thanksgiving, he called me with his outpatient speech therapist. And said to me, Jenny, I never thought I would be able to eat again. And tomorrow is Thanksgiving. And I had resigned myself to not being able to eat. And now because you called me and told me to get this done, I can now eat. And I will be eating Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow. And it was an amazing feeling. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing feeling. And I I, I was glowing that Thanksgiving. Because... Here's somebody, you know, he, you know, you, you try to think about different ways of helping your patients. And this is an example of something that, you know, was not available at my hospital. So I had sent him somewhere else to get it done mm-hmm. and was not something I thought he would even consider, but he did because he really wanted to get better. Um, and at the end of the day, it did help him. And he had resigned himself to never eating again. And it was an amazing thing. I love stories like that. I love stories like that. I have them once in a while. I try to write them down. I try to remember them. 
So on days when they're a little harder and I start to get burned out, I can say this is why I do what I do. And it's and it's so hard because and when you've been doing this for years, mm-hmm. like you forget about the small wins, right? You forget about the smaller things that happen. And you know, we, we experience a lot of loss in acute care. It's a really hard it's a really hard thing to do. You know, there are days where all you're experiencing is loss and you don't have those wins and you have to remember that those wins do happen, right? How do you prevent burnout? When you figure that out, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All jokes aside, I I love what I do, um, but there are days where I know I've had enough. Um, Yes. You know, I... I try to go home at night and turn it all off and get a glass of wine and just relax. I, before COVID, I was taking regular vacations. <laughs> um, and sometimes they're just, you know, you just need a, a couple of days, just a way to kind of recharge, right? You just need I, that time to recharge and come back right. to yourself. Because I think, you know, your joke has a lot of merit to it. When you figure it out, let me know. I think burnout, feeling like you're starting to burn out is a normal part of our careers because we are asked to give so much. But remembering what we give back, doing our self-cares, integrating life and career and work is important. It is important. And I think equally important is not taking it out on the people that are around us, right? Mm -hmm. So there are days, especially over the past year, where my days were horrible. Mm -hmm. And taking a step back and being like, okay, I'm taking off my hospital scrub cap and I'm putting on my mom cap or my wife cap or my friend cap and letting it go. Right. What made those days so horrible? I mean, COVID was rough for us in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hear the code blues being called constantly. Um, I had two patients that died within minutes of me being in their rooms. And you think, like, why are you getting called in for an eval on somebody that was that unstable? Who mm-hmm. knew that they were that unstable? Mm-hmm. We had never seen this disease before, right? So who knew that they were that unstable? And sometimes it was a matter of, okay, we need to give them oral meds. Can you just come in and see if we can give them meds? Mm-hmm. Um, it, we experienced a lot of loss in acute care this year. And, you know, but we also experienced a lot of wins, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they did this where you work, but when they had a COVID patient being discharged from the hospital, they would play a song over the loudspeaker for us. Oh, neat. So um, they played the Beatles, Here Comes the Sun, um, anytime somebody got discharged. That's a good idea. So it was, it was a beautiful thing. And you'd know that they were going home. A celebration. Mm-hmm. Last question. What words of advice do you have for the new or transitioning SLP that somebody might not agree with? 
somebody in we all know the we all know the normal you know words of advice what are some out of the box words of advice you can think of that not everybody might agree with um hmm, that's a really hard one you know when i was um in graduate school my program was closing at the end of my year which was a difficult spot to be in because basically I knew what I wanted to do. So how was I going to achieve my goals? We had to do three placements for our clinicals. I managed to get three placements in hospitals Wow! because I was such a pain in the butt. <laughs> um, I made, so I made myself a spreadsheet of every hospital within one hour distance of my house. And I called everybody on the list every week to ask them, do you have any internships open? Do you have any CFY positions open? And I literally called all, now I didn't always get phone calls back, but mm-hmm. I left messages. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a royal pain in the butt. Um, I had seen a movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, The Pursuit of Happiness. Yes. Will Smith. Yes. And I had seen that movie in a very timely point in my life because I was like, nobody was calling me back. Or if they were calling me back, they were calling me back to say no. Mm -hmm. And I was so motivated by this movie. I said, you know what? If he can go from homeless to being the stockbroker and making this crazy life for himself, I can get myself a job in a hospital. Right? Yeah. And I, I called so many people and I did it, right? So, you know, just reaching out and, and, you know, coming back to what we said before, like not being afraid to put yourself out there. Well, thank you, Jenny, for your time today and your wisdom. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciated this opportunity. today's conversation has created some aha moments for you and motivated you to become a better SLP. Continuing to connect some of those missing links between what you know and how to use that knowledge. Thank you for downloading the missing link for SLP's podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to subscribe, rate it, and leave a short review. Also, please share an episode with a friend. Together, we can raise awareness and help more SLPs find and connect those missing links and get the information needed to help them feel confident in their patient care every step of the way. Follow me on Instagram and join the Fresh SLP community on Facebook. Show notes are always available, so come learn more at freshslp.com. Let's make those connections. You got this.